Well, Happy New Year. This time of year, we always start asking ourselves the question, I wonder what this year is going to have in store for us. But we're not just turning a year, are we? We're turning a decade. What will this decade have in store for us? We, we really don't know, do we? I mean, so many changes in 10 years. Just, just look at the entertainment and media industries of what's changed since 2010. Just a little bit of alliteration. We start with smartphones. Everyone has one. Streaming. Where did Blockbuster go? Right? And some of you in the room are like, what's Blockbuster? Right? Where did Blockbuster video go when Netflix started streaming? Um, social media, which has taken over and has become an addiction for so many. Selfies. 2013, the Oxford Dictionary made selfie the new word of the year. But finally, most importantly, more singing on the silver screen. There's been a resurgence of musicals brought out by Hollywood. And this is a good thing when it comes to Les Mis and it comes to The Greatest Showman and it comes to Aladdin, but it's really bad news when it comes to Cats. 19% on Rotten Tomatoes. As one reviewer wrote of Cats, the most shocking thing about the film Cats is that it's somehow worse than you could imagine it ever could be. <laughs> or another person wrote, I'm sure there are people who liked Cats. Those people are wrong. <laughs> so many changes. What's the next 10 years going to have in store for us? What's this year going to have in store for us? Well, there's one thing we know that doesn't change. Here's what doesn't change. In this year ahead, in this decade ahead, here's what's unchanged. We can be sure of. Jesus will continue to draw the world to himself. Jesus will continue to do what he's done for 2,000 years since his birth in Bethlehem, to draw the world to himself. See, in John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus says this. He says, and I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And he's using kind of a double image when he says lifted up. He's talking once about the cross. When I'm lifted up on the cross, when I'm bearing the sin of humanity on the cross, that cross will become the most magnetic pull that every human heart has ever known. There will be a draw, this place in every human heart, pulling, drawing, wooing, calling the world to that cross. But not just the cross. When I'm lifted up also refers to the ascension. After his glorious resurrection, as he sits down on the throne of heaven, Jesus now, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is exerting that draw, that pull on the world. People are being drawn closer to Jesus. And we see it right in the Magi story today, this epiphany story. We see that this draw that Jesus has reaches lost people reaches into unexpected places and unexpected lives. But not only does that draw reach, but Jesus' draw renovates hearts and lives. 
That it's not just enough to be drawn and reached by Jesus, but then he'll draw out of you a whole new kind of life. But this draw from Jesus not only reaches and not only renovates, but this draw of Jesus will rejoice our hearts. Give us the joy we've always wanted and longed for. See, first, Jesus' draw reaches. We look at this Magi story. If you're with me in Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Matthew 2, verse 1, Jesus' draw reaches. Reaches lost people. Verse 1, we read, uh, Matthew wants us to be shocked at these words. When he says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, that's the shocking word. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. See, that word behold is Matthew's way of saying, don't take this as just ordinary story. This is shocking. Behold. We don't often use that word behold in our day-to-day speech. And so many of our English Bibles actually translate out the beholds in Scripture. But the beholds are there to grab our attention. It, it literally means look, behold. The old Bibles used to say, low. My translation would be, hold the phone. Right? That would be, that'd be the, the, the Paul Donison translation. Hold the phone. Look at this. Do you see how incredible this is? Magi from the east are in Jerusalem. The reason it's shocking is that these magi are likely astrologers, Scientists, wise men from Babylonia or Persia, modern-day Iraq or Iran. And here they are coming, looking for the king of the Jews. Why are these pagan wise men here? Well, the only answer that Matthew can give is they've been drawn here, drawn by the baby, drawn to Jesus. Verse 2, they say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. We don't know exactly what it means we saw his star when it rose. We don't know if they saw a new star in the heavens or a star doing something strange or a convergence of stars. But here's what Matthew wants us to understand, that something happened in the night sky which drew these magi to come looking for the king who was to be born in Judea. And they come to Jerusalem looking for him. Brilliant pagans, the most unexpected people you could imagine, reached by this draw. And here's what's important we got to realize. It's important we don't think, oh, yes, Look, those lost people from, you know, Persia or Babylonia, Iraq or Iran, these pagan astrologers, look at those lost people being drawn in. Because when we read the story, what we must also see is it's just as amazing, not just that these magi got drawn, but that you and I ourselves got drawn to Jesus. That we ourselves have been drawn to him. We have been reached by his draw. Because the lost people that get reached by Jesus are not just outside the church, they're right in the church. See, I get lost 
on a regular basis. I mean, any given week, I get lost from Jesus. He knows where I am, but I might forget where he is. I get lost. We go through disappointments. We go through hard circumstances. We experience fears. And we forget the gospel. We forget who we are and who he is. But this is the amazing good news is that as Luke 19 tells us in that Zacchaeus story, when Jesus reaches out to that little man that climbs up the tree, what does he say in verse 10? He says, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. See, being reached by the draw of Jesus in our lostness is not something that happens once in our lives. When we come to Jesus and bend the knee and say, yes, I want you to be my Lord and Savior, it happens there, but it happens again and again and again. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, I am becoming a Christian. Jesus is consistently, continuously finding us, his lost sheep, and drawing us home. But not only does Jesus draw reach lost people, but Jesus' reach then renovates. Jesus' draw renovates our hearts. He, he draws out of us brokenness, temptation, wrong desire. And as he pulls it out of us, not only does he forgive us, but he calls us to live a new kind of life. See, we see this in verse 3 here where it says that when Herod the king heard this, that there had been a king born in Judea, he was troubled and all Jerusalem troubled with him. You see, when Herod was troubled, everybody was in trouble. Herod, this is the one that killed three of his own sons to secure his throne. This is the Herod of which Caesar Augustus said, it is better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of Herod's sons. Herod was greatly troubled, threatened by what this king would mean for him. But so it is for us. In different ways than Herod, perhaps, but for each of us, if the true king has been born and is drawing us to his presence, we ourselves will be troubled. When Jesus draws us into his life, when he draws us to himself, our lives can get difficult. Because if Christianity is true, then suddenly it has a claim on my life, the way I live my life. I can't just continue living life my own way by my own rules as my own Lord of my life. No, suddenly I must submit myself to another and that causes us trouble. My own experience of conversion from atheism to Christianity actually was a series of conversions, right? The, the first conversion was the move between atheism, which says there is no God, to agnosticism that says there might be a God, but I don't know and I don't care. But that conversion from atheism to agnosticism was ultimately an intellectual barrier I had to overcome. I had to work through the question of, can there intellectually be a God in the universe? But then the next conversion from agnosticism to theism, not yet Christianity, but an acknowledgement that there is a God in the world, was an existential barrier. 
A barrier that I had to work through saying, does my experience of the world allow there to be a God who is engaged with his world that he made? But that final conversion from theism to Christianity was the greatest of the conversions and the hardest because the barrier was volitional. The barrier was about my will. The barrier was, am I willing to say yes to this God who's actually involved in this world and will have an opinion about my life if I turn to him? Will I say yes to him, not just as savior, but as Lord? Because suddenly everything begins to change. Those patterns of sin that he draws out, again, he not only forgives them, but he calls us to a new kind of life. We see that in verse 12 as well. At the very end of this story, after they find Jesus, what are we told happens to them? Verse 12, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The, the magi at the end of the story are redirected. They have a course correction. They go a different way, guided now by a dream from God. See, when God comes into our lives, he begins redirecting our ways. Isn't it interesting that in the book of Acts, the church first got the name, The Way. When the world looked at the followers of Jesus, the first name they gave to us was The Way. Because when the world looked on, they saw that these are people who live a different way in the world. They have a different way of being in the world. They are people of this particular way, the way of Jesus. They're being formed to live Jesus' way in Jesus' world. This renovation that Jesus draws out of each of us Again, is a continual process. It's not a one-time renovation. Like he comes in and says, oh, there you are. You're forgiven. It's all done. Carry on. No, it's a constant renovation of our hearts and our minds and our bodies. We are constantly being renovated by the work of God, drawing out of us that which is broken, forgiving, and then calling us to new life. Renovation is awful. Nobody likes renovation. I mean, imagine in, in your life, imagine there's a little part of your life that's currently draped, there's, there's walls taken out, there's dust everywhere, it's messy, it's getting rebuilt. Well, actually, if we're honest, the renovation Jesus is doing is that in the Christian's life, there's always multiple rooms in your life that he's renovating. He's never just working on one area. He's working on multiple areas. Thanks be to Jesus, his mercy has shown that he doesn't just demolish the whole house and rebuild it. Because there is so much to be renovated and transformed in our lives. But this is what he's doing. The Christian life is a life of renovation of the heart. Jesus drawing us further into a rearranged, redefined, reformed, renovated life. C.S. Lewis Famously wrote this, by the way, I know I quote C.S. Lewis all the time. And finally, in 2020, I can promise you that this summer, for our summer book study, studies, 
we're going to be looking at three C.S. Lewis books. So there you go. We're finally doing Lewis this summer. You knew it was going to happen soon. Next year will be all Narnia for the whole year. Um, (laughs) But Lewis writes this about renovation. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping up the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts terribly and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he doing? The explanation that he's building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought that you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building in you a palace because he intends to live in it. This is what Jesus is doing. Not only does he draw us with a reach to those who are lost, but that draw will pull out into our lives a changed, renovated life by the power of the Holy Spirit. But finally, Jesus' draw rejoices, rejoices our hearts, gives us that joy that we've longed for. I love in verse 10 here where when they're on their way to Bethlehem, we're told when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. What a phrase, exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why? Wasn't it interesting that they rejoice at seeing the star? They haven't even yet got to the baby. And they're already rejoicing in the journey as they see the star. What's going on here? Well, this has to do with a common misconception about the star's journey. And I know I do this pretty much every year when I speak about Epiphany. I I trash the tradition and come back to the text. And we love the tradition about what the star was doing, but let's be people of the text. Okay, so here's what the tradition tells us. The star... The Magi in the tradition, the star was in the east. Where's the east? Where's the east from here? East, 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 altar, east, 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 west, Canada, south. Okay. Um, So in, in the east, the tradition goes like this. The Magi saw the star rise in the east, and then the star starts moving west, right? Like a first century GPS, you know, westward leading, still proceeding, right? You know, it, it, it's, 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 it's a great song, but it's not accurate. Actually, it's not a great song. It goes on forever, doesn't it? But, but the, they get to the east, and then this tradition says then it starts going south, so they then get to, get to Bethlehem. Okay, so it leads them. But that's actually not what the text says. The text says in verse 2 that the Magi saw the star in the east when it rose, They deduced from seeing the star rise that there was a king to be born in Judea, so they traveled to the most natural place, Jerusalem. When they get to Jerusalem, the star isn't guiding them. Why do we know this? Because they don't know where to go next. They say, where is he who is to be born king of the Jews? They have to pull out the scriptures. 
And as they pull out the scriptures, the scriptures tell them in verse five that he's to be born in Bethlehem. So they head south following scripture, no longer following a star. And then in verse nine, as they're traveling south to Bethlehem, seeking after, taking the leadership of scripture, the guidance of scripture, no longer stars, the most amazing thing happens. Verse nine says, and behold, again, that word behold, shock, hold the phone. The star which they saw at its rising was with them. In other words, supernaturally, powerfully, in some mysterious way, the star that they had long ago left in the east was now with them traveling west. Traveling west, why? Because it seems that the star, just like the Magi, was being drawn by the child. And of course, if we're honest, if he is the creator of the universe and has come in flesh into his own creation, does not creation in itself get drawn to him in such a way that it bends its knee? I had a physicist in my first parish when I shared this concept and he came up to me after the service and said, I'm a physicist. And I thought, oh no. (laughs) And he said, it actually works. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, physicists know this. That regardless of the size of the object, what matters is its mass density. The larger the mass, the larger the gravitational pull. As Lucy says in the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, in our world too, a stable once held something that was bigger than the whole world. The Magi are amazed that the star they left in the east is now traveling with them to the west. But here's where the joy comes from. In that moment, this movement of this star demonstrates as a sign to them that this journey they've been on, this journey to seek after the one who's been born in Bethlehem has in fact not been a journey of their own construction. This has been a journey that clearly has been orchestrated and led and guided by God himself. This story is clearly no longer just about us seeking, but instead clearly about us being sought. The child that they are seeking has sought them. The joy that we experience as believers to know that whether we're in a good season or a bad season, that it is God, Jesus himself, who's drawing us into that moment has orchestrated and guided and is with us through it. Paul does that amazing thing with joy in Philippians chapter four, four, when he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, right? It's famous. We, we, we say it, see it, say it all the time. We see it on, you know, placards at Hobby Lobby, but we often miss the power of what he's saying. Rejoice in the Lord always, always. Not in the best circumstances, but in all circumstances. Not in the highs, but also in the lows. In every moment, rejoice. This is Paul who has been imprisoned and beaten and made half dead for the gospel, who says rejoice in the Lord always. 
That is an unshakable joy. That is a durable joy. Why? It's a joy that comes from knowing that God is orchestrating and guiding my steps every moment, even in the hardest of times. Joy that is durable, not circumstantial. Joy that is relational. Joy that comes from knowing that he is drawing me and knows exactly where I am. Makes me think of Leah, who's a girl in my parish in Ottawa. Leah, a pseudonym. Leah sat there with tears. It was a Sunday morning. I walked over after the service and asked why she was crying, tears streaming down her face. And she said, it's because I became a Christian during the service. She said, the Lord has been working on me, drawing, working on my heart for months now. But today I actually bent the knee and asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. Leah was a 25-year-old PhD student, brilliant, bright. And for the next few months, she got into Bible studies and joined a small group and just got so involved in her newfound faith. A few months later, there was Leah sitting again with tears. We were sitting in Starbucks, she and I, and she was recounting that over the last few months in this new Christian journey she'd been on, that one of the things the Lord had been drawing out of her, had been convicting her of, was the fact that her live-in boyfriend of three years and her weren't married. And she began to speak to him about this and saying, I really want us to get married. And the boyfriend kept saying, I'm just not ready for marriage. I'm just not ready for marriage. And she recounted that just the night before, she had told him finally that she was willing to wait for him to be ready but that she now was unwilling to sleep with him any longer until they were married. And she recounted with tears streaming down her face how the boyfriend of three years living together had stood up at that moment and said, then we're over, we're done, walked out, and it was over. But then about four years later, there's Leah again sitting with tears. But these are tears of joy. We're back in that same Starbucks probably the same table. She's sitting there with a young man named Tom, also a pseudonym. Not the same boy. Young Christian boy. And they're engaged. And we're doing marriage preparation. And I said to her, I said, Leah, since Tom knew her history, I said, how do you reconcile all that's happened with that story from before and your transformation and what, how the Lord's brought you through these ups and downs. She said this. She said, it all began, her words, it all began when Jesus drew me to faith that Sunday morning. But he just kept drawing me closer and closer. And some of it really, really hurt. But now I see that he was leading me and orchestrating it all every step of the way. What will this year have in store for you and for me? What will this decade have in store for you and for me? Well, here's one thing we can be sure of. In this year ahead, in this decade ahead, 
Jesus will be drawing you closer and closer to himself. That draw will reach you even in your most lost moments. And that draw will renovate you, pulling out of you, yes, new areas of sin and brokenness, but renewing, forgiving, and renovating a new heart and life. And that draw will rejoice your heart as you see again and again that in the highs and in the lows, in the best moments and in the worst moments, that you're drawn to where you stand because of his magnetic pull. He knows exactly where you are. He's called you there. He's orchestrated it and he is guiding you and with you in it. And that is a joy that is unshakable. So much of our struggles, so many of our frustrations, so many of our burdens are because we fight the draw of Jesus in our lives. And so for 2020 and this decade ahead, let us at least resolve to this, that we will be determined to stop fighting him. Give in to his draw for he loves you and he calls you and he is determined to make you like himself. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.